Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. In the last episode, we said we were going to wait and do this when we were together in Phoenix later this week, but decided to speed things up a little bit in large part because we've got a lot of thoughts coming off the NFL draft that we want to share while they're still somewhat fresh. Before we get to that, Stu, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. I found out something tonight. We're taping Sunday, and usually uh, I will sit in my kid's room, wait for them to get to sleep. And I'm while I do that in the dark, I'll kind of glance at my phone. It's come to my attention that I might be the only person in the United States who does not watch Game of Thrones. Oh no, no, no! Because you're you're not alone <laughs> on that. This has been a, I might be. It's been Twitter, kind of a weird weekend for me. About it. It's been a weird weekend to be on Twitter because I've never watched any of the Avengers movies, and that seems to be all anybody's talking about. And I've never watched Game of Thrones. And on Sunday night, it was like a sporting event was going on. It was live play-by-play of some sort of battle going on on Game of Thrones. I'm sure most people watching, uh, listening to this watch it and think that we're a couple idiots, but I got nothing to add on that. Yeah, I, I just like, I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh my God, everybody I know not only follows this show, but they're like, they are so invested in it, which is, you know, that's great. Let's talk about the draft. So I spent a ton of time watching it, you know, all three days, but I know one one issue became very, very polarizing. I don't even know if it's fair to call it polarizing because I'm not sure I felt like anybody was supportive of it, which was the Giants taking Duke's Daniel Jones with the sixth overall pick. You liked it, though, didn't you? <laughs> no. Who liked that? Is, is there anybody other than David Cutcliffe who thought, oh, yeah, that's a smart move? Probably not, unless somebody's connected to the, the Manning-Cutcliffe kind of connection there. I, I don't think there was a ton of people who liked it. Well, if you go back to last year's draft— the one that really confounded me was Josh Allen. I felt like you had taken this kind of completely unproven, middle-of-the-pack quarterback from the Mountain West, and the NFL kind of draft who really Who kind of did not play well in the only games that he had when they played Power 5 teams. I mean, his numbers were pretty horrible. And he also, like two years ago, when he was in his second-to-last season— he actually had a bunch of guys on his offense who ended up playing in the NFL. Now, his final year there, he did not. But I think people fell in love with a huge arm, and he was pretty athletic. And my crew did a Bills game last year. And all things being equal, meaning his best receiver was was uh, Robert Foster, who was an undrafted free agent by the end of the year. That's, you know, I guess it wasn't as bad as I think probably you and some other folks would have expected. But still, we're talking top 10 picks here. Yeah, and the thing is with Josh Allen... I mean, if you remember, at one point in that cycle, he was projected to be the number one pick. Mel Kiper literally who, had him okay. as the number, the number one pick at one point. Because I'm looking back at an article I wrote about it at the time. This would have been in late February 2018. Just showing that there's just almost no precedent for a quarterback who puts up such mediocre stats in college to become a star NFL quarterback. Now, there are plenty of college quarterbacks who put up big numbers and don't do anything in the NFL. But you don't really see it the other way around. So, Hey, before we go, go too far down this, I want to bring up something that came up on, on this very topic. So Dan Orlovsky, who does some really great X and O's work, former UConn quarterback who spent like a dozen years in the NFL, he tweeted out something to the effect of, which I think I agree with, and I think you probably agree with, which is kind of getting at what you're saying. Can we remember a guy who wasn't great in the NFL in college and then expected him to be that way in at the next level and i can remember one guy who was that and that's tom brady now tom brady's the greatest quarterback in pro football history 
But I didn't, and again, maybe I'm using semantics, but I did not think Tom Brady, you know, you could say Tom Brady was good in his last two years at, at Michigan, but it wasn't like, you know, he was probably, the, if you were to look at it, the fourth best quarterback in the Big Ten his senior year behind Drew Brees, Hall of Famer. Antoine Randall was a fantastic, you know, playmaker at Indiana. And even if you look at what Kurt Kittner did that year, I think it was like 25 to 5 touchdown interception ratio for Illinois. I think probably would have you would have said had a better year. But again, that's where the kind of semantics get in. Dan Wetzel, you know, who I have a ton of respect for, he was kind of going back and forth on it. And it was like, you know what? You can't argue. I mean, Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. And Dan's point was, I think he was not used right. Well, that's probably true because well, yeah, you know, I mean, they figured it out. The they, what, what my history have said if Lloyd Carr hadn't felt compelled? To, I mean, I really Drew Henson was. The no, I, was he the number one player in the country? If, if he was at least the number at one quarterback. School, in the yeah, country. I mean, we this is this is you know obviously predated the two four seven rivals yeah. era. So I think Lloyd Carr just felt guy. this pressure that he had to play Drew Henson, and so he never was in. He he wouldn't just turn it over full time to Brady. They were always splitting. But again, I'm not even sure how how comparable that is to this situation. Tom Brady went in the sixth round. Right. There's I no the expectation point was, was there, going as, the as there round. been a guy yeah. who had been who was just good but not great in college, and then all of a sudden, if you're going to take him in the top ten, I mean, look. You're expecting you know, him to be a, an all-pro if you do that. Oh, yeah, and I think if you're, you, I mean, you're expecting him to be a franchise guy, you know, and so, I mean, we think about some of the guys who've gone that high have turned out to be kind of, because Ryan Leaf was a great college quarterback. Obviously, you know, that's the guy people associate with bust, uh, Jamarcus Russell. Jamarcus Russell wasn't a bad college quarterback. You know, by any stretch. I mean, obviously, he had the huge arm. I mean, you go back. Christian Ponder went really high. I mean, Christian Ponder was not a. You know, what do you what do you think of Christian Ponder when I besides obviously who he's married to? I mean, what do you think of him as a college quarterback? I mean, he would fit he, he in that was, category. He right? was that that was. I mean, college football has changed so, or, or I would say actually, NFL football has changed so much since then that at that time it was just kind of assumed that if you were a certain height and you played in a pro-style offense, you were going to get drafted high, right? It wasn't that Christian Ponder was a fantastic college quarterback. It's that he fit the mold. And the one that I brought up last year in comparison to who I found to be the closest comparable college quarterback to Josh Allen recently was Jake Locker, who was another pick as being made purely on potential and physical specimen mm -hmm. and not anything having to do with his college career. So uh, I just looked up... So first of all, Josh Allen, there was months of hype surrounding him. I think the thing that's so perplexing to, to many of us about Daniel Jones is it, it kind of came out of nowhere. I, I knew he was being talked about as a, you know, in the upper tier of, of the quarterbacks. But You're so not talking about going about, in the first round. You're talking about came out of nowhere to be in a top 10 pick. Right. Like there was talk he might crack the first round. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a little weird, but I wasn't really going to think. I didn't think too much of it. But number six pick in the draft. Like you said, now the expectation is that he will succeed Eli Manning and be the franchise quarterback in the in the biggest city in the country, and it's just it's just not going to happen. There's there's absolutely no precedent for somebody who was so uh, middle of the road in college to be an NFL star quarterback. And Scott Van Pelt, I tweeted this kind of in a complimentary, impressed way. Unfortunately, some people took it that I was throwing him under the bus. I don't know why, but. He came out firing that night after the draft and his lead-in. He said, I probably watch more Duke football than the average person because they're always on in that first window of the day, and 
I often have money on them, et cetera, et cetera. And at no point, he said, did I ever feel like I was watching quarterback who would go number six in the draft. So it, it, the whole thing is, is really bizarre and shows you there's a little bit of a, like I think a lot of, if not most of the NFL at this point, has moved on from the, oh, you know, they, they're a certain height and they have a certain arm strength, therefore we're in love with them. You know, clearly Kyler Murray is the opposite of that. But this guy, Dave Gettleman, literally said he watched three series of him in the senior ball and fell in love with him. It's almost like he's the old guy in Moneyball who doesn't want to, who are these, these, who are these kids with all their analytics? You just go with your gut. That's my takeaway from that. So I know Dave Gettleman. I'm going to give you a quick, really, really random story. When I was in, going into 10th grade, I went to a football camp at Marist College. So Dave Gettleman was our high school football coach back then. He wasn't there at my high school for very long. He ended up going to be a scout. Wait, 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 wait. Dave Gettleman was your coach? He wasn't my particular coach because by that time I was in, I was only in ninth grade, but he was already with the varsity. He was a varsity head coach in my high school for a couple of years before he went. I believe he went to the Bills first and then the Giants as a scout. And I think he learned under Bill Polian. But yeah, so here's my memory of him was I go to this camp. And by the way, I'm pretty sure John Dorsey, who's now a GM with the with the Browns, also worked that camp. He was a linebacker at UConn at the time, and I think he was one of the counselors. But anyway, so I was there after a couple of days, and I got I just did not feel right. I was pretty sick, and I you just didn't know what was wrong. So I remember Coach Gettleman, who was like, you know, was kind of responsible for all of us, especially from my hometown. He takes me into like the Marist College dining hall, and he fills up one of those old, you know, style trays with the with this little short uh, juice glasses, and gives me like I don't know eight a dozen uh, glasses of, of apple juice and he says something he has a really thick boston accent and he said uh you're gonna drink so much of this you're gonna think you have antlers <laughs> and i don't know if he just thought i was gonna pee out whatever i had or what i mean look it was the 80s but then a couple of days later we found out i actually had mono and i think i missed the first month of school so i hadn't seen a you know like i remember i talked to him at, at the at the nfl combine probably three years ago I didn't explain. I knew he wasn't going to remember me. There was no reason for him to for that. But uh, yeah, so that's my connection to the Daniel Jones Giants story. I'm that's not going to. Uh, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say that you're you're dead wrong and he's right because I I'm you know look I like the I like the Duke guys and I respect them and I've heard a lot about Daniel Jones, but I think a lot of what you said I'm skeptical. I mean, to me. And I've said this before in the podcast. I think Dwayne Haskins is the closest thing to a, a sh- not a sure thing, but the be- the best of this quarterback bunch. And I think there's a big difference to me between Dwayne Haskins and everybody else who's not Kyler Murray. So you know, you look at this, and I think Van Pelt point this out: fifty nine to seven against Wake Forest. That's how you get you know you get drilled by that throw for one hundred forty five yards. I get that. You know, Duke doesn't have the weapons that Oklahoma or certainly, you know, Tua has or definitely what uh, what Dwayne Haskins has. But he went up against Wake Forest's defense. It wasn't like Wake Forest has has Clemson's guys there either. I don't know. I mean, you know, one of his best games was against your alma mater on the road. 16 for 22, three touchdowns, zero picks. But I don't know. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I'm not much on the, oh, he didn't have a great support. I mean, Brock... <laughs> Do you think Iowa State? I mean, he had Brock Purdy had Hakeem Butler, but I don't think he has like. Well, Brock Purdy, but he has a terrific running back too. I don't know if I would. He was the sixth-rated passer in the country as a true freshman last season. You know, you don't have to play for Alabama or Clemson or Ohio State to uh, put up 
good, good, you know, pass efficiency numbers. And for the record, Daniel Jones was 66th in the country in pass efficiency. Uh, 60% passer, 2,674 yards, 22 touchdowns, nine interceptions. His passer rating is actually lower than Tom Brady's was in college. So I want to ask you, though, speaking of quarterbacks, you know, you've had, you have a unique vantage point on Josh Rosen. You've, you've known him, you know, you've covered him. He was in your book uh, mm-hmm. since high school. And I feel like this latest chapter where he's in this bizarre situation where he goes from being number 10 pick in the draft, you know, supposedly quarterback of the future to trade it away for, for a number 62 pick and a third round pick a year later. You saw a lot of NFL media types suddenly that morning I guess mostly because he stopped following the Cardinals on Twitter, start talking about his, oh, well, there's concerns around the NFL about Josh Rosen. People don't like Josh Rosen. And I feel like with, this comes up every, it came up when he was a recruit, it came up when he was going into the draft, and now it's coming up again. Well, I think such some, a polarizing personality. I think some of what is kind of fodder right now is some of the stuff that started when he was a recruit, right? So I think he was a kid and... You know, I saw this some you know somewhat when I was working on the QB book was he would it didn't seem like he had much of a filter. Now, in fairness to him, he was 17 years old and he had a microphone in front of him when a lot of times some of these kids don't. And so there was that piece of it. Uh, you know, there's a well-known story about him and and David Shaw, the Stanford coach. And look, he's would have been better than whoever they had at quarterback. I think we see, you know, Keller Chris didn't end up having a great, you know, college career or whatnot, but it was just like, okay, what am I comfortable with? So I think you had stuff like that. Then you have, I don't think this is any fault of his, but he had three different offensive coordinators in three years at UCLA. None of that was his fault. And I, the two of the coordinators that I know pretty well really like Josh Rosen, think he's really talented, but also really liked them. So I think some of it, he's not the only quarterback that comes from a lot of money. There's quite a few quarterbacks who come from, let's say by the nature of the position, but but that position more than a lot of others, because I feel like sometimes those families need to, you know, spend all this money in their quarter in their kids development. You get a lot of kids who who come from affluent backgrounds. So I don't necessarily think it's that, but I just think it's a combination of a lot of factors. And then it's just a weird story, you know, because I saw one of the Miami Herald reporters tweeted something out. And I don't know how resourced or well sourced that person is on this, but just basically said the, the person is the issue. And then you saw a lot of you saw some other people fire back at him, including some former Arizona Cardinals. And I think you saw Larry Fitzgerald who's probably the most qualified person of anybody who's in the Cardinals locker room to speak on him, you know, speak glowingly about Josh Rosen this weekend. So I don't know. I mean, I think in the end it's probably worked out for him well in that he's, you know, he's going to have a similar chance in Miami. He can't have a worse offensive line in Miami than he had in Arizona. And, you know, look, I, I think if you're Cliff Kingsbury, you got a guy in Kyler Murray you're you're probably more comfortable in. They they drafted a bunch of wide receivers, Andy Isabella, the aforementioned Hakeem Butler, but I don't know how much better they're gonna be on the offensive line. So so we'll see how that works out. You know, it's definitely one of the more interesting subplots of this weekend was everything. And then Rosen, I think to his credit, and a lot of people recognize this, gave a, a very classy gesture and in, in the minute long video that he posted thanking the Arizona fans and I think people saw maybe a different side of him if they don't know much about him. 
All right, from a college football standpoint, obviously there are things that won't come as a surprise, right? The SEC had the most picks again. They actually set the record in the Super Bowl era for draft picks. Alabama has a lot of guys picked. Clemson has a lot of guys picked. Clemson, you know, we we talked in this podcast uh, last summer about the potential for a historic defensive line. They end up with three first-round guys, and then I think Austin Bryan went in the fourth round. Fourth, yeah. So the one that sticks out to me a little bit is Notre Dame because, obviously, last year – there was a, they were very, you know, well, they're always very polarizing, but when they got blown out in the bowl game, it became yet another referendum on that they don't belong. Uh, they're not, yeah. you know, they're not elite. And, you know, I think we know that they are not as stacked with five stars upon five stars like Clemson and Alabama are. But I did find it a little curious that some of their most hyped players from, from this playoff team last season didn't turn out to be all that highly regarded by the NFL. Now, Jerry Tillery did go in the first round. But, you know, when you're all-American cornerback, Julian Love, it turns out to be a fourth-round draft pick. They swore by Drew Tranquil. He's a fourth-round guy. Dexter Williams, the star running back who can't, you know was suspended early on, comes in and really reignites the offense, a sixth-round pick. The only other ones they had, Miles Boykin, the receiver, went in the third round. And uh, Alizé Mack, the tight end, went in the seventh round. So it is a good, decent number of picks, to be clear. Tony didn't even get drafted. Tony really didn't get drafted. It's just, there's a big difference between the rounds that the Clemson and Alabama and Ohio State players and Oklahoma players were going in versus the Notre Dame players. So I'm wondering if you think that that's in any way, I mean, take Julian Love, right? And I know you're not, you don't give out those awards based on NFL draft stock, but cornerback is a position where... I think if we look up the list of Thorpe Award winners, there's going to be a pretty strong correlation with they went on to, to be big names in the NFL. Did Julian Love get hyped up more than he probably should have because he was a Notre Dame play, because he played at Notre Dame as opposed to Oklahoma State? What do you read into this? I don't know. I mean, on one hand, to me, the biggest example of that was Manti Teo. He won every award you could as a linebacker and made a real run at the Heisman. He was one of the three finalists. And then I remember, you know, interviewing a bunch of NFL personnel people when he was going into the draft. Obviously, he had the Lanai, was it Lanai Kukua? What was it? Lanai Kukua. Yeah. So that whole catfishing thing that was all bizarre as it was. You know, when you talk to people, it, this wasn't Patrick Willis as a talent. He was a very good player. But, I mean, if you would, the hype around them in college was that he was more than Patrick Willis and he was you know, like one of the greatest linebackers we've ever seen. And that obviously hasn't been the reality. I mean, you look at what, you know, he's at the NFL. I mean, he's a basically an average linebacker or slightly above average linebacker. And again, I think that speaks to maybe the hype there a little bit. I do think it's, you can have it kind of both ways a little bit on this because Notre Dame put out a, a stat through Michael Burt's their, their SID about Jerry Tillery, the ninth first round pick that Notre Dame's had in the past eight years. And that's actually the third most of any program in that over that span. So on one hand, and I went back and kind of charted it, that if you look at the previous eight years before Brian Kelly took over, they only had one first-round pick, and that was Brady Quinn. So they have gotten better. If you look at the, well, there are only two other schools have had more first-round picks, and that's, you know, first-round is elite talent. I mean, I think that would make the case a better case for it. So 
Yeah, I mean, what's I interesting think... is that they've had years where they had a lot of high draft picks. I mean, 2016, they had Ronnie Stanley and Will Fuller go in the first round. Jalen Smith went in second. We know he would have gone first yeah. before that injury. Nick Martin was in the second round. 2014, they had one, two, three, three guys in the first or second, two more in the third. And just last year, they had both Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey go in the top 10 picks. So if anything, it really just says that this team that went to the playoff last season may not have been quite as loaded with elite talent as some of his previous teams. Yeah, I mean, again, I think I think they're good. I don't, you know, I think what you're talking about maybe is a just a gap between them and and everybody else, them being Alabama, really, because I mean that to me is different. Clemson has has obviously perked up, but I think right now it's Alabama, and that's that's the difference. Right. Um, was there any pick that puzzled you, either a guy beyond Daniel Jones who went way early or somebody like, why is this guy still on the board? I can't say that I was sitting here with a big board of like, here's who's supposed to kill in what round by the time he got into the later rounds. But I remember when Travion Williams' name popped up for the Bengals in the, I believe, fourth round. No, maybe, maybe keep going. Sixth? No. Yeah. I remember thinking, huh, he was the SEC's leading rusher last season. He turned pro a year early, and I don't remember anybody being like, oh, I don't know about that. Uh, he might, he would have been smart to come back for another year. No, the feeling was he'd reached a certain stardom level where you do turn pro. And, okay, not first round, not second round, okay, but sixth round, yeah, that really surprised me. Was there something I should, is there something I'm missing on Travion Williams? No, that was, that actually was the name that I was going to go with. I mean, I tweeted this much. I was stunned. He was, you know, into 150 picks. He was still available on the board. Other running backs were going. He's not the biggest running back, but it's not like he's 185 pounds. Now, I did think it was noteworthy that the team that picked him, by the way, not only did he lead the SEC in rushing, he led the SEC by a considerable gap there. Like, I don't know if yeah. Travion Williams comes back for another year and has another big year that that would really even elevate his stock. Like, what, did, what more did they need to see? Yeah, you know, I know one, one thing that, I, again, I was going to get to is I think it's noteworthy that the team that took him was the Bengals. And by the way, the Bengals offensive line coach was Jim Turner, who came from Texas A&M. So I think he'd probably be a pretty good, you know, indicator going, hey, you might want to take this guy. I know we got Joe Mixon and everybody is high on his talent. I would expect Travion Williams to have a a good career in the NFL. But your point, I think, about especially running backs is kind of a larger point. And so our colleague and buddy, Max Olson, seems to have stirred up quite the little hornet's nest with a tweet he sent out. And we were going to have Max on to defend himself on this or to, to kind of frame it better. But he's stuck in travel somewhere to Arizona. But what happened is related to Mike Leach has got himself a feud with the other half of the Pony Express now, Eric Dickerson. <laughs> what were the odds of that? That's like, so crazy. I don't know if I, you know. By the way, do you are you too young to know who Lance McElhenney is? Mm, I don't know who that is. Okay, he was actually the quarterback of that team, so I don't know if Leach could cross swords with him. But uh, so what happened in a nutshell was. Booby Williams, who was a good running back for Washington State, was a fourth-year junior, decided to come out. And I'll be honest, none of this I'd followed till the till Spokesman Review of Spokane, the paper that basically covers Wazoo, had done a story about Eric Dickerson's tweets and about really taking issue with Leach and alleged that Leach had bad-mouthed Booby Williams to NFL personnel people. Now, what I think we've seen is Leach was skeptical of, you know, didn't think he made a good decision to come out. 
Boogie Williams went undrafted and was one of many underclassmen who went undrafted. And I think to get back to your point, though, as a running back, and this is the part where I don't know if he comes back. And this is a kid, by the way, this is a guy who I think has a child on the way with his with his either fiance or wife. And I think they have another child that from from her previous relationship or so. But would you realistically, I don't, if that kid comes back at Washington state, I mean, he's probably not going to be drafted more than a, a, at best a sixth or seventh rounder anyway. It's not like he's going to put rush for 1700 yards there. People already know he's a pretty good receiver out of the backfield, but you kind of know what they are. And I feel like as when it comes to running back values, unless you're Saquon Barkley or that kind of, you know, talent you're not going to be anywhere near a top 10 pick and what one running back went in the first round josh jacobs you know again i, I don't know what it takes for some of these guys to you know I, I could see why running backs roll the dice and say you know what i only have so many carries in my body and i'm going to try to make a living and see if i can catch on because we see plenty of examples of running backs who i mean look at philip Lindsay. he went undrafted and he was a revelation for the broncos last year yeah i feel like running back is a position where there's not well, you get to a point where there's not much more you can do and certainly he's in you know playing in the worst possible offense to showcase himself as a running back but you know, it was an interesting window into you know if look we're only getting this from one side but if Eric Dickerson is correct that Mike Leach was badmouthing this kid to NFL teams you know I know that that's part of the process is the NFL teams obviously call the college coaches to get to vet these guys but I would be very uncomfortable. If I were a coach, I'd be very uncomfortable bad-mouthing one of my players unless he's did something really terrible. Because, you know, you're trying to, part of your appeal, but when you go out on the recruiting trail, right, you're trying to tell guys, hey, we'll help you get in the league. Well, word gets out that you're bad-mouthing your players. You know, why would I go there? This guy's not, he's not going to help me get in the league. He's actually going to cost me a chance in the league. Yeah, look, and I don't know that Leach did that. I mean, right now, it's like you said, it's one side of the story. I think that what seemed to rile up people was Leach had, had I don't know if he retweeted or screenshotted Max's tweet about how many underclassmen He did. Were it was, seemed to be a pretty pretty blatant sub uh, reference, right? Yeah, so I think that probably was was adding fuel to this fire. I'm not... You know, again, I think that if you're if you're a football coach who's been in the in college football for a long time, you probably know a ton of personnel people and a ton of coaches, and so I'm sure that they, you know, try to get as much of an honest opinion as they can from from coaches. And I just, you know, you just don't know what you're getting. I, I don't know if you remember, but like a year ago, I think I forgot. I think it was Deshaun Elliott you know, took to Twitter to rip Tom Herman or to rip Texas for what he felt like he was getting, you know, like he felt like somebody sold him out or didn't, you know, so I don't know. It it falls into that really murky gray area. And again, I I just, just the part that was so bizarre is, oh my God, this is the other side of the Pony Express backfield. All of a sudden it's like, and I, I, I mean, who knows? It's just so weird. Matt Hinton tweeted out what he calls the all this year's all undrafted team. Big name college players who who went undrafted, and these are not just uh, underclassmen. In fact, a lot most of them are not underclassmen. But Jake Browning, you know, all these guys have since signed with teams as free agents. But Jake Browning, obviously, four year starter, won a lot of games at Washington. But this kind of I think confirms what you know. I think Washington fans were getting pretty frustrated by the end, and uh, he's not seen as an NFL 
talent. I'm just going to list off some names. Let me know if any of these really stand out to you. Karan Higdon, the Michigan running back. David Sills, West Virginia receiver. A little bit. A little bit on him. And yeah. a little bit on the next guy. Little Jordan Humphrey? Little Jordan Humphrey. We did some Texas games. The coaches there just raved about how football smart he is. Now, he's not fast. But he's a 6'4", 230-pound guy who played in the slot. I would be surprised if he's not an NFL player, at least. One that stood out to me, uh, Mitch Hyatt, Clemson. Because it's a little window into what I like to say, which is we all do these All-American teams or we vote on All-American teams. And I, I fully admit, like sports writers, myself, I should not be picking the offensive linemen. You can call coaches and ask them who they think the best mm-hmm. offensive linemen are. We don't know who the best offensive linemen are. But I do know this, because of that, and because there's no real stats, any offensive lineman who starts as a true freshman is basically just slotted into a track where once you become third-year or fourth-year starter, you're going to be an All-American. So that's what happened with Mitch Hyatt. He was a two-time All-American, two-time ACC Offensive Lineman of the Year, and did not get drafted. So my guess is we didn't really actually know anything about him during the, while he was actually playing. We just thought, well, he's good enough to start for Clemson a playoff team as a true freshman, he must be pretty good. Yeah, you know what's interesting is, I mean, people can knock the ACC. The ACC has had some really good pass rushers, you know, in that league over the past few years, and obviously a bunch of them come from Clemson. He would have played against them every day. But it reminded me a little bit of Barrett Jones from Mm -hmm. uh, Alabama. And Barrett Jones was a guy who we all loved in the media because he was a very thoughtful kid. He played a lot. He bounced all over the – all over the all over the um, line and was versatile, but he I don't think he went in the top hundred picks. I think he only lasted in the NFL maybe a year or so, and it doesn't mean he wasn't a good player at Alabama. Obviously, he's an integral part of things, but I just you know it underscores what you're talking about, which is you know it's just something that most sports writers and I don't want to throw Andy Staples under the bus, but Andy actually has a national title ring for being an offensive lineman at Florida. I'm not sure. You know, I don't know any sports writers. I mean, I'll, I'll you know give the Aaron Taylors and Cole Kubelix credit because I think that they're studying it and that's all they're doing when they do that Joe Moore Award. But like you said, I mean, the only way we're gonna I feel like get it, grasp it, is if we talk to a lot of coaches about who they think is good. Gerald Willis had a big year at Miami. Uh, Manny Navarro wrote a great story for the Athletic on all the reasons why or theories why he didn't get drafted. Going back to an incident he had five years ago as a freshman at Florida. Speaking of Florida, C.C. Jefferson, who is a, certainly a five-star recruit coming into school. Man, Martez Ivy, by the way, another Florida guy, yep. also a five-star guy, did not get drafted. T.J. Edwards was, uh, I believe, an All-American as a junior at Wisconsin. Porter Gustin became known more for the targeting penalties as much as the football. Yeah, I think you get to a point where you say, oh, I can't believe this guy wasn't a first-rounder. I can't believe, at the end of the day, like way more guys get get branded as a first rounder or or a first day guy then there are spots for right unfortunately i don't know i think you know some chance some cases we probably greatly overestimated the guy's draft stock but in other cases it's just and i feel like this isn't particularly true with quarterbacks i mean the number of quarterbacks who at some point in their career get branded as a possible first rounder hell i remember talking to gus malzahn Going into so Nick Marshall leads them to the national championship game, and then going into the next season, he says he's got a, Nick Marshall's got an NFL arm. He might have. He I might don't have know if he has a arm CFL strength. arm. It might not. It might not be accurate. That's yeah. the thing. You like, know, there's there's old. <laughs> I had this conversation at a bar with some football coaches a year ago 
about one of the strongest arms I'd ever seen was a, a defensive lineman who was in the NFL for a while and played at Hawaii, who they said could throw the ball like 90 yards. I guess that's an NFL arm, but part of the NFL arm is can you can you be accurate? And, you know, look, one of the guys who's like who got hyped up a lot and didn't get drafted wasn't on your wasn't on that Matt Hinton list was Tyree Jackson. He yeah. left early at Buffalo. He's big as a tight end and he moves OK. He, you know, as I think I reported a couple months ago, he did not get he got a stay in school evaluation from the NFL. He could have gone as a grad transfer. I think there were some people who were a little skeptical of him because they weren't sure how accurate he was. And I think that was the knock. I mean, I think a lot of people said, oh, this could be this could be another Logan Thomas where he's big. He's pretty athletic. He can throw the heck out of the ball. But is he accurate enough to be an NFL quarterback? And there's a lot of skepticism there. Yeah, I would have liked I would have loved to have seen him come back for another year, maybe even as a grad transfer, because I do think there was potential there. They just people hadn't seen enough of him yet. But I mean, look, this goes back to Leach to Leach himself, who said, you know, and I do agree with this. Guys usually don't get much more accurate. They kind of are what they are. Uh, you know, they can read defenses better and do some of those things, but or maybe you know some of those things. But you talk to a lot of people who are in the quarterback development business. They don't usually don't think you get much more accurate. And so I don't know. Even if he came back, I'm not saying he shouldn't have, but I don't know how much that would have been different. Well, Dave Gettleman is going to try to prove that theory wrong. <laughs> millions and millions of dollars toward that. There's some actual college football news we need to discuss. Dabo Swinney gets a new contract, I believe, on Friday. And the number just, just you know, you can't see that number and your eyes not pop out of your head. Ten years, $93 million, upping Jimbo Fisher's $75 million. Now, it's not fully guaranteed like Jimbo's is. But $9.3 million a year puts him right behind Saban as the number two highest paid coach in college football. Your reaction? You know, if there's anybody who's worth $9 million, you know, like you and I have had this conversation. He's the second best coach in college football, and he's got the program right there with the number one guy and what he's meant to that that program. I thought what was interesting about the deal is there is language about if he goes to Alabama about, you know, where the buyout is. I don't think he'll follow Nick Saban. It wouldn't shock me if he followed the guy who followed Nick Saban because that's home for him. But that's a far stretch off. You know, he's still got he's got two sons who are playing football there and another son who's in high school. And that's pretty much all they know is Clemson. But my point on this is I think with you, when you're in the ACC and you're at Clemson, you know, you have a unique position where if he goes to Alabama, I think it's a harder job. Because there's just there's there's other programs, whether it's Georgia or LSU or Texas A&M or certainly Auburn, who are very well resourced and they're going to throw a lot of money at football and at everything around football. And so they're committed to playing at the highest level. And obviously, you know, you're going to be measured against Nick Saban there. So, look, one thing that I I tried not to get into, but I just kind of like after I tweeted out of the details that I knew of the story was. Just a ton of people weighed in. And, well, there's no money to pay the players, and that is a slippery slope. Slippery slope topic because, you know, I would have no problem with paying players. It's just the question is like, how do you do it? And it's a it's not a, not easily solved in 140 characters. I mean, when when the day comes, and I'll say when, not if, the athletes start to be compensated for more than just uh, scholarship, it's not going to be. They're not going. To, the schools are not going to be cutting them a, a salary the way they're cutting a salary for Dabo Swinney. That's just not. 
practical for a million number of reasons. You know, the, the, the model that a lot of us think they should be doing already and it wouldn't be very hard to implement is the Olympic model where they're being paid by outside parties or for whether it's, you know, to do endorsements or autograph signings to, to take but I, advantage I, I of their, why, yeah. I get why that is, is, uh, something that is, is thorny for the NCAA, you know, because you, those endorsement deals, you know, you have five star kids, you know, boosters are going to be going to the highest bidder there now. But they Maybe do that already. Okay. You know, I mean, I mean that, that 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 that's true. I don't, I don't, I don't disagree that there'd be it'd be thorny. But the same schools that get the five star recruits now would be the ones whose boosters are showing out money to get them. Then, no. Here's my I thing: mean, is that so you can would make. Would you be okay with? Would you be okay with that? With like, I mean, because that would be a different reality if all of a sudden, like, let's say, you know, every school has car dealers who are, you know, who provide for the coaching staffs or whatever, or most big schools do at least, you know, if let's say they were saying, you know, kids come on official visits, Hey, you're going to meet Jackson Cadillac and the dealer's going to come out and he's going to go, okay, this is what you're going to get. This is what your dad's going to get. This is what your high school. I just don't think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm naive. I just don't think they would, it would get to that extent. The number of kids, let's put it this way. I think you're naive. I think you're so naive on that. Well, there gets to a point where it wouldn't it just wouldn't be good business for the car dealership to be doing 25 endorsement deals a year. How many players you would you say in college football move the needle to the point where like Johnny Manziel when he was in college would have gotten some sort of huge endorsement deal. Well, like, let me let right me now Tua and Trevor Lawrence would have huge endorsement deals. But most college football players are just not that well known to uh, to get that kind of money. I think you are kidding yourself on this. And so I'm going to give you an. Do you think the boosters would. This is what I think would happen. I'm going to give you a, a little scenario of it. Mm-hmm. So, one thing that I, I was tweeted about this the, on Thursday night was the one area that I think that the online recruiting guys do better than any other area of evaluation is with D linemen. You know, these guys, and it's like you see them at. You know, some of it's unfair and one-on-ones and shorts and a T-shirt. They have such an advantage over the offensive line. But, you know, and there's just guys who are like Ed Oliver's and Rashawn Gary's and Dexter Lawrence's are just not a lot of them on the earth, you know. So, but you look at those. I think in the first round, there were 60 linemen who were five-star guys. I think they were all from the same class, from that 2016 class. Or maybe, well, Christian Wilkins wouldn't have been. He's He's older, but it was... Bosa, Ed Oliver, Rashawn Gary, Dexter Lawrence, Jeffrey Simmons, and then the other one would be Christian Wilkins. And so my thing is, if you're the car dealer, you're definitely going to going to pay for those guys. I mean, everybody knew who those guys were. I remember I did a story. At, I don't know where the hell I even worked back then. When these guys were coming out of who was the biggest impact guy, who, would, who was the most ready to make an impact. And I think Ed, Ed Oliver won that by, you know, talking to the recruiters I talked to, but a lot of these guys, I'm sorry, like, you know, here's an example, like Biggie Marshall from USC, who was a cornerback, you know, didn't have a great career there. wasn't like an all American, even a close. I think he might've made all conference or second team all conference one year, but he was a five-star guy and he's a big cornerback from Southern California. I think he went in maybe the fourth or fifth round here. He would have probably been, he's the guy I think somebody would have paid a lot of money for. No, oh, yeah, the the five star guys would absolutely be the ones that they were bidding over. I think we're seeing in the basketball trial, the FBI thing, that in basketball at least, 
they're already being bidding wars for these kids. They're just going on under the table. So it makes more sense yeah. in basketball, though, because you know, usually it's easier to predict in basketball who's going to be great. I mean, the right. Kawhi Leonard's or guys who kind of emerge a little later are more rare than they certainly are in, you know, the the uh, Andre Dillard's of the world. I mean, no knock on him, but I, I don't think there would have been a bidding war for our 6'5", 240-pound project who ends up turning out to be a first-round pick. But these D-linemen and some of these other guys and some of these receivers, quite honestly, I think there would be a lot of them. I would say there'd be a couple hundred that they would be getting cars and their families would be getting cars. Getting back to Dabo, so... I know everything is black and white on the internet, but you know it is possible to simultaneously believe that the players should be getting more, and that Dabo, given the tremendous impact he's had on that university, is worth nine million dollars a year. Grace Rayner, our Clemson writer, was able to get um, the next day. You know, we published on the Athletic the full slide deck, PowerPoint, whatever you want to call it, that that Clemson's uh, AD did to justify this to the board, why they should give him this big contract. And the numbers, it's not just that he's won national championships, it's that, you know, the number of, the amount of money they're making on season tickets since Dabo, before he got there to now, has doubled. The number of, and, and this is where it gets, I think, where you can start to justify this from a university standpoint, the number of kids across the country who are applying to go to Clemson has skyrocketed because of Clemson's football success and as a result when there's more applications uh that means you're you're getting in kids with better, better resumes better, better students, students yeah. i mean there was a great wall street journal story about this with alabama a couple of years ago nick saban has completely transformed the profile of that university so from that standpoint davos swinney is absolutely worth nine million dollars a year to clemson university you can simultaneously believe that and that the players should also be paid in some yeah, whatever think, form or fashion that might be. I think, um, and I make this case, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, I did a story about Mac Brown and the impact he made on the economy down in around Austin, Texas. It's not just to the university, it's to the whole community there. You know, even Frank Beamer, when he got a role in Blacksburg, I mean, new hotels got built you right. know, around there because of that. And so I'm not saying that. Now, are there overpaid coaches that are, you know, the money is staggering that so many guys are making $5 million plus? Yes. But if you have a great coach, and I would put what Dabo Sweeney's certainly done there, obviously what Saban's done. If you have a great coach, uh, those guys end up being a bargain for what they've done. Yeah, I think the folly of, and I don't know how you avoid this, the folly of college football coaching contracts is that these guys, Saban, they absolutely deserve it. But then you've got all these other coaches. I mean, Butch Jones was making $5 million a year when he was at Tennessee. You know, because that the market sets it a certain way, you, not only are the really accomplished guys getting paid that, but then just to hire an SEC head coach, there's like a barrier entry point. So before the guy's actually proven that he's any good, you're already paying him a pretty inflated amount of money, you know. In that case, it's a, you know, it, it's, with, with Davo, it's a reward. He's being rewarded. He's being compensated for what he's achieved there. But when you hire a new coach and throw all this money at them, you're basically making a, a big bet, an investment. And sometimes that pays off, and sometimes that's tens of millions of dollars down the drain. But, uh, you know, the last thing I would say is, uh, in relation to the, the payers, players being paid argument, you know, if, if that was uh, allowed tomorrow, the extra money wouldn't go, they wouldn't take the money away from Dabo and give it to the players. They would just, I mean, this is blunt to say this, but they would just cut the 
water polo team. You know, like most of that athletic surplus that when people say, oh, this school is making $150 million in athletics, what are they doing with all of it? Well, they're paying for the scholarships of all the sports that don't bring in money. So if given a choice between, if you said, oh, suddenly you have to choose between paying the football players or keeping the scholarships for all these non-revenue sports, they're going to pay the football players. So again, the, they're not connected as much as I think people think. Davos Swinney making $9 million is not a direct result of the fact that the players aren't paid anything, if that makes sense. All right. Unfortunately, we have run out of time to do the mailbag this week, but send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll get to them next week. Also, Bruce and I are about to, and, and many of our uh, media colleagues are about to descend on the desert in Phoenix. So I think the next time we convene for this podcast, we're going to have a lot of stories to tell about all the coaches and ADs and, and other college football types that we talk with this coming week. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So